Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today we're talking about a subject that I absolutely love. I think this has the potential to really be freeing for you and to help put you on the fast track uh, for growth. And if you know anything about me or my company, you know, we're all about accelerating growth for our clients. And this topic today is going to help you do just that. And so we're talking about systems, systems and delegation for growing your Amazon business. And I'm going to be talking to a guy who knows a thing or two about this because his Amazon business just made number 254 on the Inc. 5000 list. That is not a small feat. That is very, very impressive. This episode of the e-commerce evolution podcast is brought to you by OMG Commerce. And in addition to this podcast, we want to be a resource for you, helping you accelerate your e-commerce growth. I have a few powerful resources that are yours for the taking. First, if you're an Amazon seller, we have two resources I think you might like. One is called our DSP Roadmap. If you're considering Amazon DSP, it's a special type of Amazon Display Ads, which has some targeting features that will blow your mind, uh, get our Amazon DSP roadmap. If you're interested in sponsored brand video, formerly Video and Search, check out that guide. On the Google side, we have the ultimate guide to Google Shopping. This is a guide I wrote several years ago. We got some updated information. Now you can get free Google Shopping listings. This guide will help you in that process. We also have our top YouTube ad templates. I think you're going to love that one. And then the guide to getting authentic customer testimonials. All of these give you detailed information on how to make these things happen. Very valuable, but also very free. Check them out, omgcommerce.com. Click on resources and guides. Check it out for yourself. And now, back to the show. My guest today is Mr. Trent Deersmith. He's the host of the Bright Ideas podcast. They're in like their 330th episode or something like that. Just crazy. Uh, very good podcast. I encourage you to check it out. He's also the founder of Flowster, which is the premier workflow management software tool for e-commerce businesses. And so with that, Trent, welcome to the show, man. And how are you doing? Very well, Brett. Thanks, to, uh, thanks for having me on and uh, good to see you again. Yeah, it is good to see you. So we we connected, uh, we met through mutual friend, the world famous Steve Chu, uh, mm-hmm. who also runs a podcast. But yeah, we spoke, uh, it seems like another lifetime now, but it was actually at the yeah. Seller Summit last year, you know, back when the world was open and we could have virtual events. And I'm, I'm sorry, we have in-person events. And uh, yeah, it seems, seems like another lifetime, so. It does, it does. Uh, yeah. I miss those days. I do too, I do. I, I, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll be back eventually. And so we've got something to, to look forward to for sure. Um, so really excited to dive into systems and delegation. I, I think these are areas that some entrepreneurs just skip over or they're reluctant or they are the system, you know, all, all kinds of things I think we can get into there. Uh, before we do though, would love to hear your background. How did you, how did you get into the Amazon business and, and tell us a little bit about, you know, as much as you want to tell us about your Amazon business to kind of give us some context. 
Sure. So in the spring of 2016, uh, my wife and I, thanks to the podcast, we've we basically generated enough leads to build a, a pretty decent digital marketing agency. Um, but I, we were tired of being in the professional services space. And I wanted to, I'd have been in that space all my life. And I really wanted to make a shift into more of a product focused business. And uh, again, thanks to the podcast, I, I know a number of people who have successful, or at the time, had successful private label businesses, and they were honestly harassing me that you know, I was missing the boat. Yeah. I've had um, a few friends harassing me with those very same discussions. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually, I relented and I said to my wife, I said, look, you've got the, we've got enough process and people in place that you've got the agency in hand. I'm going to, I'm going to duck out and, and do this Amazon thing on the side and when I started, because the people that I knew were doing private label, naturally, I thought, well, I'll do private label. And I went into it with the confidence of a seasoned entrepreneur and proceeded to pretty much fall on my face <laughs> because <laughs> I, uh, I made some overly optimistic product selections. Uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, I've got money. I'm going to throw ads behind these things and I'm going to wrap them up and off we go. And You're a successful marketer. You're a successful business owner, right? Like piece of cake, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll yeah. crush it. Of course, I didn't know anything about Amazon. So I got humbled pretty quickly. And I, I, you know, I think we were doing like 20 or 30 grand a month in revenue, but I was spending so much on ads to generate that revenue. There was no profit left. And I was quickly tiring of the experience. And then uh, podcast strikes again. I interviewed a guy by the name of Dan Metters on my show who was using the reseller model, which I had no idea that that thing even existed because I just hadn't put any time into studying Amazon, which I probably should have before getting into the private label aspect. And I was immediately enamored with the reseller model because, well, probably because we weren't having success doing what we were doing, but also because it's a really low risk method. And some of the biggest sellers on Amazon, like the Net Rushes and the E-Tails and Big Fly and River Colony Trading and all these companies, I mean, these guys are doing 100 million plus a year as resellers. And I thought, well, clearly it's scalable. Possible, uh, yep. Yeah, it's possible. So. Um, I hung up the, the the mic from the interview and I turned to my wife and I said, we're going to, I'm going to switch to that reseller thing right now. And I was pretty aggressive about taking action and hiring some virtual assistants and creating processes for the parts of the business that I didn't want to do. And the results came very quickly. Within five months, we had exceeded a uh, hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue Within the first 12 months, we did, I think it was about 1.1 million in revenue. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, that business ranked number 254 on the Inc. 5000 last year. And here's the really cool thing. I delegated myself completely out of day-to-day -day operations within six months of founding the company. I have worked amazing. there. It's years. amazing. That's, now, that's, my wife did work there longer than me, but even she now has a role that is basically three to four hours a week. It's run by a team of around nine people, and that wouldn't be possible without uh, my obsession with systems. I love it, man. And that, that's why I want to talk to you about systems, because you clearly know what you're doing and you built some successful systems. And, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, we, we build our businesses and it's hard, man. And you've, you've outlined that you had a successful agency and then you started a foray into Amazon and it didn't go all that well in the beginning. Right. And then you had to you know, pivot and then, and then it went well later. Right. So it was hard. So we, we, um, 
we get kind of attached to our business, right? It's our baby, so to speak. And there are parts of it we don't want to let go. Or sometimes we wrap up our identity in, I'm the one that does the things. I'm the one that's, I'm the expert in this area, or I need people to need me in this area, right? That's, that's I think, some of the things that entrepreneurs mm-hmm. think. Um, but really, like to, to have a business that's freeing and have a business that's sellable at some point, if you want, like making it where it's not fully dependent on you is, is extremely powerful. And so uh, let's, let's talk about systems and your obsession with systems. I'm sure the answer to this question I'm about to ask is you should systematize everything. But for someone who's maybe a bit of a control freak, like what do you, what do you systematize first? And then we'll also talk about delegation in a minute. So let me begin by giving some credit where credit is due. Um, I read Michael Gerber's Ebeth many, 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 many. Such years a good book, in, man. In the Such first company book. that I started. And so I started creating systems back then. And, and what I figured out was that there are a set of activities in every business that are highly, that are critical to operations. The, the process is well known in advance. So it's not like building a custom house every time. And you got to do it over and over and over and over again to keep the wheels on the bus going around and around. So, and then, and then there's a subset of whatever those activities are that are pretty linear and don't require extensive industry experience and the judgment that comes from experience. So if you can tick both of those boxes, that is the low hanging fruit of the activities that you should systematize. Because one, they're relatively easy to systematize. It's kind of like baking a cake. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this yes. in this clear, order. Clear, clear, recipe, clear recipes, clear checklists, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're with, with those systems in place, Brett, your ability to delegate those critical, highly repetitive activities to people, typically for us in the Philippines, we call them virtual assistants, it becomes really easy. And now you've, you've got all this stuff going on for, you know, like five bucks an hour instead of 25, $35, $40 an hour, which is going to be your fully burdened cost of hiring another employee in the healthcare and, you know, all the, all the entanglements that come with the traditional hiring approach. And um, we have just rinsed and repeated the hell out of that formula. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think if you don't have a system, then really everything almost feels like you're starting from scratch. You know, even yeah. the things that are duplicatable, it feels like you're starting from from ground zero again, which which is certainly not necessary. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, delegation as well, because the two go hand in hand, right? You have to kind of systematize first and then delegate. So, so I like I like that framing you just gave there, but should someone also maybe consider the things they're not good at or the things that they don't enjoy doing as the places to start delegating first? Or what advice would you give there? The answer could be yes, but it also, it depends. Mm-hmm. I look at what am I the best in the company to do? And those are the things that I'm unlikely to delegate because hopefully those are also the things that have the, the highest ROI. Mm-hmm. So in my Amazon business, for example, in the first six months that I actually worked there, I was the best closer. When it came to talking with a brand about forming a partnership, nobody was better than I was. And I was not easily going to be able to find someone else to do that. 
So I delegated everything that happened or needed to happen before that meeting would take place, like identifying the product, identifying the brand, identifying the individual at the brand, finding their contact information, sending them an email, and actually getting them to book into my calendar. That was all handed off thanks to the systems. So I was able to spend the bulk of my time talking to prospective clients or partners, as we call them, and then, and then getting them to say yes. So I think that's, that's part of the answer. And the other part is, yeah, if there's things that you don't really like doing, like life's too short, I think, to do things that suck energy from me that I really don't want to do. And eventually, being the closer was one of those things. Like I got to the point where I, I'd done so many calls and I was doing so many calls. I'd come into the office and I'd be like, oh man, there's like five calls in my calendar today. Like I really don't want to do these calls, even though I knew we would get paid money for doing them. So eventually I decided oh, I'm going to pass that off too, because I have this little sign here on my, on my, uh, on my desk. And it says, if you're the CEO and you're still knee deep in client execution, you're the biggest bottleneck, you're your own worst enemy. Uh, that's a quote from yours truly. Nice. And, I love that. And so I thought to myself, well, yeah, okay, sure. Fine. I could continue to do these calls and I'm going to close more revenue than, than the next guy I'm going to hire. But at what cost? Yeah. What other thing could I and should I be focusing on that in the long term would have a even greater return than this thing? Yep. And so eventually I made the decision that I was going to delegate that activity um, to somebody else, which I did. And no, he was not as good as me. He didn't close as many sales as me, but I got something off my desk that I didn't want to do anymore. And eventually, you know, if you're really looking at scale, well, you're going to not just replace yourself with one person, you're going to replace yourself with a sales team. And so the aggregate productivity of that sales team would be vastly superior to what you could do on your own, even if they're only 60% or 50% as good of a closer or presenter slash closer as you are. So in that situation, you're still far better off. Because I always look at, I've sold a business already and, and I want to sell more. And I always look at, well, what makes a business valuable to a buyer? And that means it runs on its own. Like right, my Amazon right. business now, I can legitimately say to another buyer, I don't work there. I'm just right. a shareholder. So you don't need to work there either. Right. right. Am I going to be able to sell that company for more than the exact same company run by you and you're knee deep in execution every day? Yeah. Without a doubt. Because, With, without a doubt. Yeah. 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 Yep. I love it. And I think, I think it's a beautiful way to put it that, you know, even something you're really good at, like closing, if you build a team and systems, eventually the team is going to be better than you in terms of total output, even if the closing yeah. ratio is, is slower. And again, if you, if you start to put your identity on, you know, Hey, I close as many deals and that's what makes me feel valuable or, or whatever, whatever that internal dialogue is, it prevents you from doing the next thing, prevents you from, yeah. from growing in, in, the next, in the next way. And that has a big cost. I, I'm, I'm in the process of reading a book. I uh, highly recommend that it. It's called The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Really old mm -hmm. books, like 50 years old or something now. Um, was recommended to me by a lot of people. Actually, I think I heard Tim Ferriss talk about it. But uh, Jim Collins, you know, author of Good to Great and author of uh, Turning the Flywheel, two of my favorite books. He's a huge Peter Drucker fan. And he actually wrote the, the intro to the, the new edition of this book. But one thing's one of the things they talk about is you know 
uh, only work within your strengths, right? So that, that's kind of the first principle. It's not like you did that first, right? You kind of delegated everything except the closing because that's what you were best at. And so the idea is you had to delegate everything that is not a strength. And then in terms of like improving your weaknesses, the recommendation is only improve your weaknesses as they pertain to your strengths, right? So don't, mm-hmm. you're bad at keeping books. Like don't, don't work on that. Like get someone who, who eats and breathes and sleeps bookkeeping. Like that's going to be a waste of your time to get better at that. But if, if let's say you wanted to keep doing the closing, if you worked on elements of that, that made you even better closer, that would be uh, a good use of mm-hmm. your time. So a quick example, and this will be kind of fun. It's a sports example. Um, uh, I'm talking about Michael Jordan in the in the. I was interview. just thinking of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, he, uh, you know, always a good jump shooter. I'm a little bit of a, a fanboy when it comes to Michael Jordan, but always a good shooter. Obviously, could drive to the basket. You know, could slash and drive like nobody's business. But later in his career, when he was driving less, he developed a fadeaway. Right. So he developed this fadeaway jumper, and it really became a completely unguardable fadeaway. Like he, you know, super high percentage. You couldn't block it. But that's something he developed later, right? So that was, I don't know if you call it a weakness, but maybe in Michael Jordan's terms, it was a weakness for him. But then he made it a, you know, a, a strength. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of weaknesses you need to work on, weaknesses that are still inside of your, inside of your strength. So, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, other, other pieces of advice, when, when, when this goes bad, right? So when someone tries to systematize or delegate, and it goes bad. What are what are usually the reasons that it doesn't work? And and any advice on on making it work? Sure, um, they're trying to cut corners on developing their systems. For example, I can think of a few examples. But the first one that comes to mind is that the the person who the boss who's looking to delegate a given activity thinks, well, I'll just record a video. I'll set up my screen share and I'll just zip through and I'll show them how to do it and they'll have a video. And they end up with a 10 or 12, 13 minute long video, whatever. It's some amount of length. It was easy for them to create versus a more detailed workflow or standard operating procedure, whatever phrase you would like to use to describe it. So it's easy for them to create, but it's not easy for the recipient to consume. And there's a number of problems. So first off, let's say that you are the creator. I'm the, I'm the underling. You've made this video for me. And now you've like given me the video and said, okay, Trent, go do the thing. Well, when I'm watching your 10-minute video, can I remember, as I'm passively watching the video, can I remember every last detail? No, that's impossible. Nope. Nope. Which means that I need to, you know, watch it a bunch of times or hit play, pause, play, pause, play, pause, whatever. Well, because there's no checklist present, the probability that I'm going to miss something or skip a step increases because, you know, like it's playing and then I get a text and I'm texting and the the video's playing and I pause it, but there was like a critical piece of information that just zipped past on the screen. That's not good. So that's one aspect of it. Now scale it up a bit. Let's say I've been, uh, you've now created 85 videos for 85 different processes and those videos contain uh, screenshots of, or, or not screenshots, but screen shares of you using various, you know, the Amazon cellular central interface or third-party tools or whatever. Well, guess what? That stuff changes from time to time. Yep, pretty frequently. So now, now you have 85 videos that every, every passing day are going out of date. And you're looking at them and you're like, and you're loath to go and edit them because editing is very time. A lot of work, yep. 
you're loath to reshoot them because maybe the change you want to make is only like one little screenshot in four or five words, but now you got to either edit or reshoot the whole thing and you don't have time because you're busy chopping down trees. Well, that's a problem as well. So there's another reason why your video-based procedures are not going to be particularly effective. And then finally, if, you, if, you're, if you're just creating your instructions, for example, in Google Docs or in video, how do you delegate effectively to somebody else with a deadline or somebody else's? Because some of my procedures involve the labor of two or three different people at various steps throughout the procedure with differing due dates. And thankfully, you know, my Flowster software solves this problem for me. But if I don't have that and I've got a Google Doc or a YouTube video or wherever, now I need another piece of software to assign the task to you or to whomever and to give it a deadline. And and because, you know, I need an alert. I need, if, it, if it goes overdue without you completing it and I don't have an alerting system, well, my, I don't know about you, my memory's not good enough, especially when you're doing this at scale. Like there's just the wheels are going to all fall off the bus and crash. So those are some of the most common problems. And then regardless of whether you're using software like Flowster or video or whatever, if your documentation lacks sufficient detail, that also will cause no end of problems. To use a silly metaphor, you know, if you're baking a chocolate cake and you forget to put in the eggs, yeah, how well is it going to turn out? Simple ingredient or, yeah, we made, that's such a good example. We made um, uh, cupcakes or pancakes. I don't remember which now, but we left out salt and like salt wasn't a major <sighs> ingredient. Like it was, it was pretty small, like, yeah. like a tablespoon of water for this whole batch. But uh, made a huge difference in, in the flavor. So yeah, sometimes these little steps can yeah. can derail the the whole thing. Um, any advice on? And I want to get in. I want to talk about Flowster specifically and kind of hear some of the the ins and outs of that and then how you how you founded that and everything. Um, any advice on how do we know if we're being detailed enough? How do we know if something is clear enough? Any any insight there to make sure we're creating these really robust, almost you know foolproof SOPs? Yeah, a couple of pieces of advice. So one is the method of creation. Whenever I'm doing it, um, like right now I'm sitting in front of my iMac with a 27-inch monitor. So it's big enough of a monitor and I actually have two monitors. So, I, But it's big enough that I can have like a left half and a right half. So one browser yep. window here and one browser window there. So typically when I'm creating a process, I'll be doing the thing in the left browser. And for every step that I do, I'll be documenting, in other words, taking screenshots, big red arrows, annotating screenshots or typing out text or whatever in the, in the procedure in the right-hand side. So I'm creating the procedure as I'm doing the thing. So that's sort of a best practices, at least from my experience, for creating something. Then I jokingly call the, the mom test. Okay, so your procedure is done. You could pick your mom or just somebody who's, who's never done the thing <laughs> before and give them your procedure and see how many questions they ask you and see whether their, their chocolate cake turns out well or not. So if they're asking you a lot of questions, you obviously lack detail. If the cake doesn't turn out, your instructions either lack detail or they're flat out wrong. Um, so those, those two things work together. If you do that, and, and, and so QA is an important part of the process. Um, but if you do both of those things well, uh, chances are your first version won't be your best version, but it'll sure be pretty darn close to the mark. 
Yep. I love that. The mom test. Yeah. If it's, if it's easy enough for mom who probably doesn't want to do something online, yeah. uh, then, then you know that it's, it's easy enough and good enough for any employee or virtual assistant that you, that you look to hire. Yeah. Um, are, are there any, any warning signs or anything to be looking for to, to make it clear to a business owner that, hey, this is an area of your business that you may want to systematize a little bit more. This is an area of the business that you may want to systemize better. Any, any insights there on, on where to find those, those areas and how to find those areas? Yeah, I would, first of all, you know, to be in business is to be a problem solver. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's really all we do. And so look where your fires are. Look where you're getting the most, the highest number of problems um, and start there because that is an area where you have got inefficiency, you've got waste, you probably have frustrated people because nobody likes making mistakes. And especially if you deal with clients and your clients are angry, nobody likes receiving angry feedback. So in the world of professional services, for example, you know, you've got your salesperson who's out there saying, promising the moon, we're going to do all these things for you, Mr. Client. And the client's like, yeah, that sounds great. Sure. Where do I sign the contract? But then some of those things get forgotten in the deliverability phrase, a phase. And so now you've got an unhappy client. Well, why not, for example, have a highly detailed process for new client onboarding? I mean, that's something that's very repeatable. It's super important in establishing the client relationship and setting the stage and meeting expectations and first impressions and all these things that we know are critical to the, to the length of time a client's going to be working with you. Um, that would be uh, an area that I would absolutely look to focus on. Yep. I love that. And that's actually, you know, we run an agency as well. And that onboarding time is so critical. It does. It is kind of the the first, you know, step in the, the dating relationship or, or the marriage mm-hmm. relationship, whatever you want to call it. And, and so getting those things right is critical. And so one of the things we've tried to do is we've tried to look at, hey, this is an area in the business where there, there tends to be some, some speed bumps we're hitting or roadblocks that we're hitting or something like that. And I think the tendency sometimes is to look at those areas of the business and say, oh, well, it's just the, the people. Our people are not, they're not smart enough or they're not working hard enough or whatever. But Often you have to look at those areas and say, you know what? It's probably because we don't have a clear system. We don't have a clear process. We haven't clearly outlined what should happen. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that was that onboarding. That was actually an area we tackled a, a few years ago. And, you know, because we were convinced that we did have smart people. And we did have great people. But there were just a few inconsistencies. And so, yeah, mapping that out uh, makes, makes a ton of sense. So 100% agree. We're problem solvers. That's what we do. And often if there is a problem, it, it may not be your people, although it could be. It could be just that the system's not clear and uh, it's not defined. Here's a great quote from um, the past honorary chairman of Toyota Motor Corporation. He says, we get brilliant results from average people managing brilliant processes while our competitors get average results or worse from brilliant people managing broken processes. Mm. It's so and good. It's so good. To me, yeah. that sums it like McDonald's obviously has a system for everything. And and at no point in your training, if you're going to be the burger flipper person, do they say flip the burger when you think it's ready? They say flip the burger when the beeper goes beep, beep, beep. Right. Right. And as simple of an analogy as that is, it's widely applicable in many businesses, much more so than you would ever think. There's another book 
built to sell by John Warlow. And he talks, it's a story about this guy who's running an agency who, who doesn't think that he, everything's custom. He's building custom yeah, houses, yeah. metaphorically speaking, all the time. I'm sure you've read the book. And his advisor slowly teaches him over time that, no, that's not actually true. Your custom houses aren't nearly as custom as you think they are. A custom house is merely the culmination of a number of highly repeatable processes all stitched together to the conclusion of a custom house. Yeah, I love it. And I think that's something, you know, a lot of people will look at that McDonald's example and say, well, my business has relies too much on creativity or my business is too complex. I couldn't do that. Uh, and while, yeah, it may not be as simple as, you know, learning how to work the fryer or flip a burger, uh, it can still be systematized. And you can yeah. still say, okay, yes, you do have to apply some creative thought and have to understand the client goals or understand these elements, but you still take the same steps leading up to that. And then it's still, you know, you, you can still frame it and and put a process around it to make sure you get consistent results. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. In Werelo's in book, he gives a specific example, and I'll do my best to remember it, but it's in around the area of brainstorming. And much like everything in life, there's, an, there are, there's a process for effective brainstorming. It's not yeah. just, hey, let's eight of us sit in a room in front of a whiteboard and see what comes out. <laughs> That's not an effective method yeah. of brainstorming. Yet brainstorming is a very creative process, but you could absolutely have a system. Okay, here's how we're going to start. Here's what we're going to do to get our brain's juices flowing. Here's what we're going to do to filter out our bad ideas. Here's what we're going to do to iterate our good ideas. Here's how we're going to bounce those ideas off. Of, like the whole thing can be broken down into a process that can be followed. Yeah, it's so good. And another thing that was that came out of the the book that I'm reading uh, was talking about effective meetings. You know, how do you run an effective meeting? And it's not just well, let's just get everybody together and we'll, we'll figure things out. It's no, let's we're here's how we're going to prep. Here the the here's how we're yeah. going to form our questions before the meeting ever happens. Here's what we're going to do to to really diligently follow up after the meeting. You know, even having a process to run really good meetings, even if you don't know all the details, just like you said for the brainstorming session, you have a structure and a process mm -hmm. to really ensure that you get the most out of it, which is, which is super powerful. So let's, uh, this has been fantastic. Let's, let's transition. I want to talk a little bit about Flowster. One, I think it'd be interesting to hear how and why you started that. I think there's probably gonna be some entrepreneurial lessons there. And then uh, tell us what, what Flowster is and, and what it does. Sure. So I'm actually uh, scrolling right now through, we just finished an exercise to really, bring the right verbiage to our to our product as we go to market with it. So I'm going to actually just read you what, what we just developed. Oh, great. That'd be awesome. Um, so Flowster helps brand owners to maximize revenue from direct consumer e-commerce channels by providing a content-rich process management app that allows users to accomplish e-commerce activities in half the time or at half the cost because consumer brands should focus energy on creating and developing, improving, sorry, developing and improving unique products, not reinventing repeatable business processes. So Good. dumbed down, Flowster is a tool that you can use without writing any code to create processes for whatever it is that you need to do so that you can easily delegate those processes to your team. And we've taken it one step further by focusing, because much like Trello, our app could be used by anybody in any industry. The differentiator is that nobody wants to create a process from scratch. It's too much work. 
They'd much rather come and find pre-made processes and maybe they're going to hit the edit button and think I want to make a little tweak here, a little tweak there. So a lot of our job is to create pre-made processes for our customers to take that burden off of their plate. So we have processes because of the success of my own Amazon reseller business, we have a lot of processes around just selling on Amazon. So that's why I mentioned to you our, our target market is brands that want to have sell on Amazon via their own seller central account, entrepreneurs that want an Amazon reseller business, or even Amazon agencies like yours that are looking to scale up their management of their clients' seller central accounts. We have all sorts of content available for that. So that's really what Flowster is all about. Yeah, that's fantastic. So is this, is it one of those tools that you kind of built for your own use first or at, at the request of some other people or how did it, how did it kind of come to be? That's the coolest part of the whole story, I think. So remember, I remember that I mentioned, I, I interviewed this guy named Dan and within, we did a million and change in our first year. Well, Dan sells a training course for people on this and, and I don't. And after a year, he got wind of what we had accomplished and he said, damn, dude, how the hell did you get such an amazing result? And I said, well, you know, I created all these processes. I hired a whole bunch of virtual assistants. And where the average person who takes your course maybe is able to put in, because they're still full-time employed, maybe they're able to put in, you know, eight or 10 hours a week to product research and outreach and doing all the prospecting activities. I'm doing 80 to 100 hours a week, but it's not all my own labor. Right. Because right. I'm using... So, so just even if I'm no more talented than them, I'm doing eight to 10 times the volume that they're doing. And he's like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Do you want to come and speak at our conference about that? And I said, yeah, sure. So I get on stage in front of 600 or so people. And the, because of my podcast and my YouTube channel, they, they knew who I was, but I didn't have any products for sale. And I said that, I said, hey guys, I'm going to explain to you how I did this, how I achieved this result but I'm not pitching anything. I don't have anything for sale. Flowster didn't exist back then. Yep. So I said, you know, take good notes. And at the end of the talk, which was a pretty detailed talk, to be honest with you, probably too detailed, but anyway, a lot of them came up to the mics or they emailed me or they tweeted at me or they whatever, they messaged me some way, shape or form and said, I want what you have and I don't want to have to build it from scratch. Could we buy a copy of your processes? And... Um, Long story short, we sold, they sold like crazy. In the first week, we sold $400,000 worth Whoa. of processes. Dude, that's, which that, was, is, that is crazy. That's a lot. Yeah, which was at, like at 2500 bucks a pop. It was vastly in, in excess of what I thought we would sell, best case scenario. And so our content at that time, because remember, it wasn't created as a product. It was just created for us. It lived in somebody else's software application. And once I sold... $400,000 worth of this stuff in a week, I kind of thought, hmm, that's going to happen again. Yep. Now I wanted to own the software later sure, as well. Sure. Now you're not getting any recurring revenue from that, Bingo. but the owner of the other software is. and, and that's Yeah, it. why am I building his business when I could be building my own? And I knew that recurring revenue also has a much higher exit multiple. So absolutely, the, the value of what I was building was going to be exponentially higher if I owned the software. So fortunately, um, not being a software developer, one of my very good friends is, and he had already built and sold his software company and he had some decent amount of success doing it. And I said to him, I said, hey, buddy, I said, look, this is what just happened. I did 400 grand in the first week. And he said, I'm in. Nice. And so he became the co-founder and CTO 
we wrote code for over a year. Wow. And I was the guinea pig, of course. And so at the beginning, it was buggy as hell. And then, you know, over time, there was less and less and less bugs. Creating software business is not for the faint of heart. Several friends have built SaaS platforms or software, and it it is a massive undertaking. It's very, very appealing. And there's quite an allure there because, yeah, you can get a, what, 7x multiple in some cases or 20x, you know, whatever. Uh, but yeah. it's not easy. That's for sure. No, I would go so far as to say, if you don't, if you're not a technical person and you don't have a technical co-founder, your odds of success are really, really low. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. So, because he he's been a master at getting a, a large amount of development done overseas for a very small amount of money, which is why we've been able to bootstrap it to the point where it is. So by October of 2018, it was ready, um, and so we launched it. And since then, it's been attracting users uh, at a pretty good clip. We have around 5,000 people that are using the platform. Amazing. Uh, or, have, or have signed up to use it at one point in time or another. Yep. And now we're at a point where we're really ready to pour gas on the fire and, and really stoke it up. And, and the goal is to get uh, to, to 1,000 paid users by the... Because we have about 500 or so paid users now. 1,000 paid users by the end of the year by taking some of my existing content and then putting it into subscription content and putting it into the platform and doing some things that are a little bit different from a pricing perspective than we've done in the past. And so that's, I kind of stumbled into being the founder of a software company. I'd always wanted to be, don't get me wrong. I didn't know what the idea was going to be. And I much less how the hell I was ever going to get the thing built. And, And now of course, I've got all sorts of grand plans for the future and partnerships and white label programs and all this great stuff that we're running micro tests on. And, and I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, if you ask me five years from now, it's going to be, have been one hell of a incredible ride that ended up with a, a pretty big payday, I would suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so aside from what you mentioned before, and I want to get into the, the details of the software. So I want to kind of do almost a little uh, verbal walkthrough here. But before we do that, any other advice you'd give to someone? Because I bet there's some people listening, you know, toying with the idea of building software for this or that or, or whatever. Uh, so aside from either you needing some serious technical chops or having a co-founder with some, some serious technical, uh, technical expertise, uh, what else would you recommend for those that are thinking about starting uh, a software business? Either words of warning or, or, you know, sage advice from someone who's now uh, been in it for a while. Yeah, so um, a couple of things. Don't one, don't underestimate how difficult the technical aspect of software is. Um, it, do your best to find a technical co-founder, and that's not easy to do. I had a ten-year relationship. This guy was my roommate at one point in time. <laughs> so the whole, are we aligned on values, or do we get along? Do we deal with adversity? Like all that stuff was known in advance. So what do you do if you don't have that? Well, oddly enough, I actually interviewed someone on my show not too long ago. Her name is Cynthia Delaria, and you can find her at brightideas.co and you just type her name into the search box. And she actually has a company, I'll see if I can find the episode number, that helps entrepreneurs like me who don't have a technical co-founder who Mm. want to uh, launch their own software business. And she has episode 318, Bright Ideas. So 318. Awesome. 318. And the episode is Cynthia Delaria on how to start a technology company the smart way. 
Um, and I think that people would would get a great deal of value um, out of listening to that interview and, and potentially working with Cynthia. Great, love it, uh, fantastic. So let's let's kind of do a walkthrough. So what what separates Flowster, you know, from other project management tools out there? You know, like a Teamwork PM or an Asana or or Basecamp or something like that. And and how did you build it differently? What would be some of the things you'd point out to someone who's who's new to the software? Sure. So the tools that you just described are excellent project management tools, right. but they weren't built for process management. Hmm. And there's a difference. And so process management is, we know what the process is. It's going to happen over and over and over again. Whereas project management, it's going to be pretty unique each time. So by focusing on that one differentiator, we, we are, we're scratching a different itch and we're solving a different problem. So for example, in our vernacular, we have what we call a workflow template and a workflow. So a workflow template is all of like, for example, producing a podcast episode or doing keyword research or optimizing a listing on Amazon. All of those, there's a workflow template for that process. And we'll use Amazon product listing as an example because it's relevant to both the businesses that we're in. So let's say that, Brett, you have a new client and they've got 50 listings in their catalog and you're going, you're responsible for optimizing 10 of those listings in the first three weeks, just to pick some random example. So you would have 10 workflows running, one for each listing. Well, let's say that midway through whenever, you, as the smart leader that you are, figure out, oh, there's a way to improve our process for optimizing listings. We're going to like add this step. So you go into the master workflow and you add, because you have the rights to do it because you're the administrator or whatever, and, and you add a step. The software is then going to say to you, hey, we see that there are active workflows that are out there in some level of completion. And you've just added a step to the master copy. Would you like me to also add all the step to all of those active workflows and you're going to probably click yes. Nice. That one thing is wildly valuable because now midstream without holding a meeting or a Zoom or a training session, everybody on your team knows that step 12 got added and they know what the step is and they can't complete their workflow without completing step 12. So you are able to take this improvement in your process and immediately push it out to everyone in your organization for every active client with a couple clicks in the mouse. That's, that's awesome. pretty awesome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's huge. That's one of the features of Flowster that I love the most. The other thing that is the differentiator is our chosen target market and our workflow marketplace. So obviously by focusing on e-commerce, we are trying to create a body of content around everything that e-commerce businesses have to do. And we're starting because we have a lot of content around Amazon. Obviously, we're starting there. But once we've got all that done, then we're going to have a lot of content around Facebook ads. We're going to have a lot of content around Shopify. We're going to have a lot of content around, you know, whatever that has to do with e-commerce. So for people that come to use the platform, they're not going to find that level of pre-made content anywhere else on the internet. Like we're it. We are going to be the single 
largest source of high quality workflows for all of the aspects of e-commerce. So as opposed to say going and signing up for a sauna or base camp or whatever, and having no content, having to create it all from scratch, which would suck. Yep. Yep. Those are just strictly platforms that there's not, you don't get any templates or SOPs or, or, or workflows to, to take and tweak and make your own. Yeah. Correct. Just like when you go sign up for Trello, it's empty. It's a great tool, yep. but it's empty. And Trello, fortunately, only needs micro bits of content. Workflows, on the other hand, is not micro content. It's a lot of content to create a good workflow. So we are super focused for the next couple of years on building out, maintaining, and keeping current that body of content. And so one might ask, well, you know, how do you do that? That's a lot of content. And we do it by partnerships, by aligning ourselves with experts in each one of those areas and then forming deals with those people so that they are responsible for keeping their six or eight or 10 or whatever workflows that they created up to date on an ongoing basis. Great. And so you mentioned uh, in the, in the beginning, you talked about kind of the, the shortcut process of just creating one massive video that outlines everything. Clearly that's not useful. Uh, But sometimes, you know, small videos are, or certainly screenshots are, um, so then your your platform sure manages screenshots and images, but does your platform also handle video or do you guys not yeah. recommend using video? No, you can absolutely use it. As a matter of fact, one of the markets, so you can embed in a video anywhere in the process that you would like. You can embed as many videos as you would like. One of the markets that we're actually micro-testing is it has occurred to me that by accident, we've also built something of a learning management system. Because if you think about Teachable, for example... Teachable allows you to put together a curriculum that is based upon videos. You can have accompanying documents. You can have accompanying bodies of text, but there's no workflow capability at all. And yet when you're learning something, there are activities that need to be performed on an ongoing basis. So one of our micro tests, this may, this may fail or this may work. We're not really sure yet is reaching out to course creators and saying, well, why wouldn't you complement your course offering with the workflows that are associated with it and either give it away as a value add or um, treat it as an upsell and generate a second string of revenue for yourself. And um, so that may end up being a big thing for us as well. That's super smart. Super smart. I love it. So if someone is listening to this and we've just got a, a couple minutes left here as they're listening to this and they say, okay, I got to check this out. One, I want to see maybe what, what SOPs and workflows Trent and team already have built out. We'd also like to maybe get a free trial of the software. Uh, how do we do that? And, and what, what does trying out the software look like? So I'm going to put up a page specific for your audience. They're going awesome. to get to it at flowster.app slash OMG. That'd be great, man. Easy to remember. Okay. Slash OMG. Like it. And all they need to do is go there and, and I'll have offer and way to log in and anything special that we want to create for them there. And I always come up with something special for folks, usually some discounts or some free content or something that will give them more value than if they just went to flowster.app to, uh, to sign up. Great. So flowster.app forward slash OMG. I'll link to that in the show notes as well, but that's pretty easy to remember. So go check it out. And, and kind of as we wrap up, you know, Trent, I'm a big fan of the, the podcast, Bright Ideas podcast. For those that aren't familiar with it, I know you talked about an episode or two already, but you want to give just a quick overview of what that podcast is and what, what your goals are with it and, and who it's for. 
Yeah, sure. So it's an e-commerce podcast. My goal is to tell the stories of uh, what, how brands have made themselves successful on Amazon, on their own DTC website, and by whatever means. Uh, for example, earlier today, I interviewed a company called Neuro. They were on Shark Tank. Mark, uh, they have Joe Rogan as a fan. They've been on the cover of Entrepreneur. And how did all that happen? And so we did an interview where... Um, Kent Yoshimura, the co-founder, shared with us how they initially started with a huge PR outreach and so forth, and then how they got on Shark Tank and how they did all these things. So really like to deliver as many actionable tactics or golden nuggets, as I like to call them in each episode. And who listens to us is uh, other brands, of course, because brands like to hear what brands are doing to grow. So CPG brands. Also, um, because of the fact that I'm well-known in the world of Amazon resellers, I think I have a pretty decent chunk of my audience that is an Amazon reseller because I talk a lot about process with each and every guest. And so there's lessons for them there. And then I also have a portion of my audience, which I'll call the aspiring entrepreneur, and they're listening because they aspire to start a brand or they aspire to become an Amazon reseller. And they're looking for actionable tactics to get their business off the ground. Fantastic. I love it. Trent, this has been fantastic. Uh, really appreciate taking the time. Highly recommend everybody go check out Flowster if for no other reason than to look at some of the workflows and SOPs. You'll learn a lot. So get some of you. You got some, some uh, SOPs there for free, it looks like. And so check that out. Also check out the Bright Ideas podcast. It's a fantastic one. If you're really, you know, if you if you like this podcast, if this is a good, if this is a good fit for you, then that, then Trent's podcast is going to be a good fit as well. So Trent, awesome work, buddy. Appreciate you coming on and we'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you very much for having me on, Brett. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks again. And hey, as always, thank you for tuning in and we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear feedback. What are some other topics you'd like us to dive into? We would love that review on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. And with that, until next time, thank you for listening. All right, man, that is the At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session, or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.